Hello, everybody. This episode, uh, Jody and I are going to be answering a whole heap of your questions. For the past week or so, Jody and the team, Jenny and everybody, have been canvassing our clients. And you've got a computer there with a whole heap of questions for me. I'm not being antisocial. No, no. <laughs> um, and we're going to be answering them. We're going to do the best that we can. Some of these questions were very, very uh, broad. Some of them are very detailed. So they've inspired us to then go create subsequent videos where I can do a full whiteboard session or a Loom video. And um, we're going to dig deeper. In this podcast, I'm going to answer them as best as I can with that pretty pictures and um, all that jazz. Uh, and, you know, I hope that you get some value out of it. So, Jody, thank you for joining the podcast today. It's been it's a while. It's really nice to be back. I know you were nervous. You still feeling those nerves? A little bit. Okay. Well, we'll jump straight into the questions <laughs> then. So, some of these questions have been asked by clients when we're speaking to them friends and family of ours um, and from Instagram. So little shameless plug to follow us on our Instagram. It's at Be Wealthy. Yes, Be Wealthy. <laughs> follow wealthy. us at Be Wealthy. Yeah. Um, so let's kick off with, um, with, a, with a big one. So Dom, we, we all know the market is pretty hot right now. What do you anticipate will happen as unemployment rates decrease and the government incentives start to end? So we understand that the market is hot right now and if the unemployment rate goes down, so employment goes up, so more people are employed and uh, the government incentives uh, go away, what do we think is going to happen? Is that the question? Yeah, yeah. Um, well... There's a few things in there. The government incentives is one thing. That, that would be the main thing that would put downward pressure on pricing. However, the government incentives have been very targeted to specific parts of the market. So the incentives have been targeting um, first home buyers, buying stuff that's uh, less than 750K if it's a house and land pack to get the 10K incentive or less than $600,000. That's brand new uh, property. Um, and then the the government, uh, the builder bonus has again been for primarily people that are earning under a certain income threshold and are buying house and land packages or spending an exorbitant amount of money on their own home. So that's, that's to specific parts of the market. And yes, those parts of the market have grown very well. We've seen a huge uptake in the house and land parts of the market. Land sales have been very, very good, very strong. There's been a lot of house and land packs going uh, out west in Melbourne and in Brisbane. Uh, it's been crazy. The apartment part of the market has been slow. We haven't seen a lot happen there. So if you do see those government incentives go away, I do think that that part of the market will suffer a little bit. But broadly the whole of the market has been going well. Every single state has been doing well. Uh, all parts of, of these states have been performing regional, the cities, uh, regionals perform much better than cities. Um, but, but we've seen a lot of growth month on month. And if we see the government incentives go away, I don't think we're gonna see much of an impact to pricing. It'll keep on performing quite well because those parts of the markets haven't really needed the incentives. 
Um, if we see the unemployment rate decrease further so more people are employed, again, I think that's a positive impact to the market. So uh, if the question's really trying to ask, will this boom be sustained and for how long? I would, I would like to say that, the, that we're going to see uh, a long while where we will see increased prices. It's hard to believe, but there it is. To, to add to that, that <coughs> was, I think that's what people are thinking when they ask this question. I did paraphrase it, but I think what they're thinking is the market is hot right now, which means prices are quite high and we predict that prices are going to keep increasing. But how can it keep increasing, increasing, increasing? Because after that, there has to be a crash. And when is that going to happen and what's going to happen when that does happen? So... I cop this question all the time. People say, how can prices keep on going up? Is it sustainable? Incomes like, aren't rising as fast as property prices are rising. Yeah, but debt is really, really cheap. So there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. I want to get behind the... Because that question is a little bit loaded. <laughs> a little bit loaded. Um, I think that prices can, can keep going up indefinitely in many ways. Um, it sounds a bit crazy, but there is a lot. The 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 property market is impacted by many different forces. Um, currently, we're impacted by local demand. So that is to say that uh, you need to see uh, income growth, particularly here in Australia. So. When the borders open up eventually, then it's impacted by overseas demand because we are a highly lucrative market and people want to invest mm -hmm. over here. So the fact that there's no wage growth doesn't mean anything for that overseas factor. Mm. The other thing is just because wage growth hasn't necessarily gone up as fast as property prices, and that's really not normal to see wage growth increase at the rate of property prices, you've seen interest rates come down and banks... Uh, loosen their credit which means that for the same amount of money you can go out and effectively service a loan or a bigger loan um i'm going to sort of jump around but i'll bring it all back um if if we're not seeing any wage growth but we can still afford to uh to service higher and higher debt levels that means the banks will give you more and more money however not at a crazy rate because they typically will have a look at your serviceability at a, a higher interest rate than normal. So just because they're posting, hey, your interest rate's 1.9% or 25 or 3%, they're actually assessing your rate at a much higher rate and they're putting in a whole heap of different um, things to lower your income or reduce the amount of income that you're receiving. So they're not being irresponsible. Now, I think that property prices will keep on growing for quite a while and it's because property is uh, an emotional purchase as much as it is an investment for us it's a hugely emotional purchase it's a it's a feeling that comes back to or, or date predates you know even early mankind it's um us wanting our own cave it's us wanting shelter to, it's it's raining like crazy outside it's us wanting to get out of the rain it's for us wanting to protect ourselves from mm. predators so having your own home, protecting your family is an innate feeling within all humans and wanting to then eventually buy your own home is one of those emotional draw cards that I don't think is going to go mm. away. So I think you're always going to see pressure on property prices for people to put 
a roof over their head. And what you'll see is if it becomes too expensive in particular markets, people will just buy smaller things in those markets. So if you can't afford a house in uh, Leichhardt or Turak or whatever, you'll go and buy a townhouse or you'll buy a unit. And if you can't afford to buy a unit or you don't want a unit, then you'll go further out west, north, south, east, wherever you are in, in the world or wherever you are in Australia, you'll go to an area where you can afford and you'll drive the prices up there. So what you'll get is sprawl and property prices growing. And then only the elite or only people with lots of money will uh, buy in the premium markets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it answers another question we had also love getting philosophical in this podcast. Um, there was another question or I guess an observation on my end. I hear a lot of comments about investors inflating the market and making it really hard for first home buyers or making um, property less affordable. What are your thoughts on that? So how do I plan for... Uh, no, sorry, this one. Ah, there it is. Um, okay, so this person is asking about how do I feel about investors inflating the property market? Mm -hmm. Well, the first part of that is investors aren't inflating the property market. Investors typically are very rational uh, people. Well, they, they are making a rational investment. They're making a rational decision. They're saying, hey, do I believe there's going to be growth in the market? Or, you know, how much rent am I uh, receiving for this investment and how much am I prepared to pay for that rental income? Hmm. So it's a very rational, thought-out uh, decision. And more often than not, investors won't make the decision if it's not rational, if it's not going to make them money. Mm -hmm. So they want to get in at the lowest price possible. Mm. Investors want to pay less normally. Who The people that are inflating the market aren't investors. It's the owner-occupiers. Owner-occupiers are what's flooding the market. At the moment, the vast majority of purchases in the market are owner-occupiers. These are people that want to buy their own home. It's a heavy emotional, like emotional-ridden decision. They're looking at this next uh, purchase as their own home, as a place where their kids are going to be running around and eating grass and kicking soccer balls. and Or um, it's a place where they want to retire in. It's a place where they're going to spend a lot of money, a lot of emotional time, family time, whatever, in this place. So they're the ones that are prepared to pay $100,000 more or $800,000 mm. more. It's funny, I think when when this topic comes up about affordability, people want someone to blame and I think investors have copped the blame. Yeah, investors <laughs> investors haven't really come into the market yet. We're, we're seeing a small increase in the amount of investment loans and that's the way that we determine it. Uh, in, uh, they are creeping into the market mm -hmm. certainly, but it's not, not at the levels that people believe yeah. and these prices are being driven by owner-occupiers. All right, so how do I plan for investments depending on my future? For example, if you were to start a family. I, how would I plan for my investments if I'm thinking about my future? One, you should be thinking about investing <laughs> if you're thinking about your future. Um, but it really, that's a very circumstantial question. Mm. Let's, let's play out a couple life scenarios and, and analyze it. So Charlotte and I are at that age where we're talking about babies. And at the moment, we've got two incomes. Mm. When she has a baby, we're going to go down to one income. 
So in that instance, when we're thinking about our investments, um, we're lifestyle-driven people. We love to party and eat and go out and see friends and hosts. So having discretionary income to us is very important. I'm not that willing to make huge sacrifices to my income in service of investment. I I like to live. Mm. Um, I'm kind of a lazy investor compared to, say, Tiffy. Um, So when when we're thinking about our next investment, I'm looking at our cash flow and I'm thinking about can I afford to – purchase this asset if Charlotte were no longer working. So then when I'm thinking about that investment, I want something that has a higher rental yield than normal. I want something that can more or less cover the cost of the debt and all the expenses without having without me having to put any additional income in there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking about your future and you're thinking about having kids and stuff, and you're going to go down to one income you need to think about your next investment very carefully. One, you need an investment because it's going to get harder if you buy, unless it's going to get harder to buy later, so you should buy it now. The second thing is you get something that is completing now so you can secure it. And the third thing is it should be something that um, you should be mindful of the income that it produces and how much cash you're going to be out of pocket. So that meant that will then call into question how you structure your debt. Hmm. Should I get P&I? Should I get interest only? Um, you know, what type of investment should I be buying? Now, other life decisions may be, um, you know, I'm, I've got babies on the mind at the moment. So let's Ch- think Changing it, jobs. Changing jobs. Moving overseas. These are, another, these are great, inv- uh, great life decisions to be making. I've, I've done all of those. I started a business and went down to zero income. Um, so again, you want to be thinking about what kind of, mm. I think it comes down to how does, how does the, the investment, how does my income impact the investment and change going overseas, changing jobs. Um, one changing job may impact the ability for you to go and get a loan may not necessarily will. Um, so you will probably want to buy the investment today rather than in the future. So off the plan may not suit you unless it's a lot of time and you're confident in yourself that you're going to get a job. Um, If you're traveling overseas, again, you probably don't want something that's going to be negatively geared or too heavily negatively geared because whilst you're traveling, you don't want to be servicing a number of different properties. Mm -hmm. When I I traveled for a year and I had a property portfolio, but with that portfolio, it was paying me. So that was a bit different. Yeah. So you probably want to structure something like that, not – it's hugely negatively geared or you're paying down the debt. You may want to think about how you're going to structure your loans. Yeah, yeah. And on that point of negative gearing, I know we had a lot of questions about that. Can Mm. you talk more about negative gearing, positive gearing, um, and who would be more suitable for which strategy? So I want to just preface all of this. that (laughs) None of this is financial (laughs) advice. This is Dom's musings and and this is how we would approach that situation for ourselves. And, you know, we're not financial planners. So when you do make these decisions, we can advise on the prop. We can show you what properties are good, what, how they're going to suit you, what the cash flows are, but you do need to consult an accountant, a financial planner, um, a mortgage broker. There are different professionals for each part of this deal or transaction or equation or your personal circumstance um with that in mind negative and positively gearing uh, negative and positive gearing is just uh, a term used to say is the property costing you money or is it putting money in your pocket negative means that 
it's costing you money. Mm-hmm. So if the property is negatively geared, it means that you need to put uh, your income or your savings into that property to hold it. The only circumstance that you really want to be negatively gearing your property is if you have a strong conviction that the property is going to grow in value or you're going to do something to that property which will engineer value and create equity in that asset. Because let's just say, uh, for instance, it's a, a property and it's going to cost you $10,000 a year, but you know for some reason or another that it's going to increase by 100K. Mm-hmm. That means it's, it's the, the cost is $10,000, it grows $100,000, so that means you're netting $90,000. So in that instance, negative gearing makes sense. Um, we often don't really like negatively geared assets unless you're paying it down, unless it's principal and interest or um, unless you've got a huge amount of servicing and the accountant has said, um, listen, we want you to be paying down an asset or we want you to lower your marginal tax rate or we want you to have mm-hmm. deductions. Now, there are other ways that a property can be negatively geared and let me just preface this with it can be neutrally geared before tax and then um, it'll be technically negatively geared because of the depreciation that a property has. So I might have to do a, a, a full mm-hmm. whiteboard session on this. But the long story short is the, the property depreciates in value. The, the, the building depreciates by 2.5% every single year for 40 years. And then the fixtures and fittings, the carpet, the floor, the, 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 the fan, the lights, they all have different lives. Um, you know, carpet's like 10 years roughly and a light might be two or three years. So you can depreciate the value of that asset over time and you can write it as a paper loss against your income. So um, in that instance, the property would be negatively geared on paper. You can offset your income and then you're away. So that's a bit of a long-winded... Well, that was a, a detailed... <laughs> answer to negative and positive gearing yeah i think there'll be a separate video for that separate video for all of you deductions yeah yeah i think the previous questions have been a bit uh circumstantial this one is a little bit more clear what are the underlying hidden costs of a property well there shouldn't be any hidden costs not hidden but um, (laughs) things you don't you might not consider when you i guess see price tag up front yeah it's hidden to you because you're, you're unfamiliar, Mr. What are the underlying hidden costs? But this is why you want to work with consultants and work with professionals because there shouldn't be any hidden costs. We'll tell you up front. Now, the things that people don't normally think about are stamp duty is an obvious one. So you should know that how much stamp duty you're going to pay. So when you buy an asset, you've got to pay tax on, on acquiring that asset. Then there's um, you know transfer of titles, your conveyancing fees or solicitor's fees. So you've got to get a solicitor to to work on your behalf to review the contract and then there's certain costs or title searches and things that they'll need to go pay for which will be passed on to you. Um, to set up your loan, some mortgage brokers will charge your fee, most won't and then also there may be some lending fees associated with the setting up that loan, an establishment fee or lender's mortgage insurance. Then you'll need to, uh, if it's an investment, you'll need to get a property manager involved. They will charge you a fee to let the property out, to do some marketing, to then manage that property. 
Uh, and then there are different uh, documents or schedules and things you'll need. You need insurance. That might be building or landlord's insurance as well. And then you'll also need a depreciation schedule. So there's a lot of different fees that are involved that should be accounted for in your feasibility. Uh, though none of them should yeah. be hidden. I, I remember a few months ago when Callum and I were asking, oh, once you've made the capital gain, why don't you just sell it or why don't you flip? And you were saying property actually has a lot of fees involved and might not make sense for you to just sell it, hold on to it for a little longer to or offset those it. fees. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. So that's another thing. Um, there, there are fees involved with selling property. So this is the reason why you want to hold it. When you sell it, then you've got to pay an agent, you've got to pay marketing fees, you've got to pay tax. And I won't jump into CGT and things, but there are different ways to calculate your capital gains tax. And it may make sense, one, to hold a minimum one year. Uh, and if you're going to sell it, try and wait the one year. Uh, and if, if, if you don't need to sell it, then hold it because mm -hmm. you're going to have to buy another investment anyways. And mm. if it's a good investment, just keep it. Mm. And on that note, where should I invest? <laughs> That's another loaded question. <laughs> Where should I invest is a question that I get all the time. And then clients get annoyed at me or friends, family get annoyed at me because I say, it depends. It depends on your budget. If you've got $400,000 to spend versus a million, that that's it a, does depend. That <laughs> depends. It tells you where you can go. Uh, it depends on your strategy, what are you trying to achieve uh, with your portfolio? It depends on your life circumstance. Are you gonna have a baby? Are you gonna change jobs? Are you gonna go traveling? Um, are you gonna get married? Uh, are, you know, are you gonna get friend help from your mum and dad? Will they commit some, some money towards your deposit? Are you retiring soon? Yeah, you're retiring <laughs> soon. Are, uh, there are so many different things that are, that are particular to you that will determine the type of property that you should buy. Also, what type of property do you like? Um, I mean, I don't want a client to buy things that they like. They should buy things that they want to invest in. But it's an emotional decision. How can you spend half a million dollars and not get emotional? You don't spend a million dollars every day, so you're going to be emotional. And it's very hard to just put that aside unless you're very experienced. And some clients will say, hey, I don't want an apartment or I don't want a house. So that then determines the type of the area that you can go into. If you've got a million dollars, you can go buy a house closer to the CBD. Um, uh, if, if you don't like those suburbs and you want to get closer to the CBD, then you need to buy an apartment. So it really all depends. Uh, I, I, I don't, we tell you, tell you all, all on, if you listen to the podcast, we talk about areas all the time. So I'm not going to talk about any more areas, but if you are asking that question, where should I be investing? You should be asking yourself a question before that and say, what's my strategy? Mm -hmm. And perhaps you should be talking to someone in the team. <laughs> we'll help you. Shameless plug. Yeah. I remember I, I was saying to Jenny in a, in a separate little video that for myself, I prefer buying in a city because I am that person who will rent there. I understand that demographic, so I understand that investment. To me, I don't quite understand going 40 kilometers out of the city to buy house and land. Someone else can understand that, but that's not how I invest. So I like to be able to understand what I'm investing into. See, that's good. Um, 
people don't want to be taken too far away from where they are today. So they don't want to be taken too many degrees of separation mm. from where they've started or take too many steps out of their comfort zone. So for you, you could understand the the demographic of the person that was going to rent it. Mm-hmm. So you could get into their head and you're like, hey, I'm that person that I'm going to rent to. So I understand what their wants, their needs are and what they're prepared to pay. So in your brain, you could artic- you could understand easily why the investment would yep, work. Exactly. When you become more uh, sophisticated investor, then you can start putting yourself in other people's shoes. Mm. You can do the research and say and understand what the needs of a family might be. Or you can look at historical data and see how different areas have performed over time and what were the key changes in the demographics, in the investments in infrastructure. You can see with experience why different things work and you become more uh, comfortable with different types of yeah. investments. Yeah. I have a hairdressing salon as one of my tenants. I have never run a hairdressing salon, you know, but I knew that that was going to be a good investment because of, you know, what was happening with the demographics, blah, 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 mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Kind of on that note, what does a balanced strategic portfolio look like to you? To me personally? To me personally, um, a balanced strategic portfolio has, for me, as I said earlier, I don't want my lifestyle to be impacted too much. So balanced and strategic to me would be something that puts, creates an income for me because I like to have a, a, a portion of my portfolio give me an income. I was starting a business years ago and I didn't. I was going down to zero income. So what mattered to me was having some income. Mm-hmm. So I wanted an income-producing portfolio. However, I also wanted to have upside. I wanted to have parts of my portfolio that would grow fast. I wanted to have equity in, uh, equity producing. I wanted to have capital gains. I wanted to be able to use that equity to keep on investing. So I wanted a mixture between having a good income or good enough income to cover my lifestyle expenses. And then I wanted to have part of my portfolio available so that I knew that in a couple of years, I was very confident that I was going to have growth. And equity, and which equity. we have a video about. Um, a balanced portfolio for, um, let's just pick a random person. Let's just say, you know, you're a mum, you've got your own home, you've got a bit of equity, uh, you've got some kids and you haven't got a partner. So a balanced portfolio for that person is, depending on their personality, maybe a little bit more conservative. They may want something that's going to have, again, a higher income so that they, they, if they don't work for a time or if they need to take a break or if something happens, then they haven't got this huge debt hanging over their shoulder and they, haven't, they don't need to worry about servicing that debt. So for that person, I would want them to use a portion of their equity to buy another asset that is going to be a strong income-producing asset, enough that it's going to be covering a va- the vast majority of your expenses, maybe a little bit negatively geared. Um, to the extent of how negatively geared will determine their levels of um, their comfort levels. Uh, for another person, let's just say that you are a first-time investor you're earning 
six figures or you're at the upper end of your tax brackets, you're paying a huge amount in tax and you've saved a large deposit, I would say be bold. Mm. Go and buy something that is blue chip, bigger, nicer, um, buy in a, as premium area as you could buy and you know, get something that you, you feel is going to have strong growth because you need equity to then go again. And also having something that's bigger, maybe costs a little bit more, will help you offset some of that tax uh, and, and lower the amount of tax you're paying back to the tax man. Um, I'm just trying to think of other people that balance strategic portfolio suits. Let's say you've got a huge amount of cash. You know, this is actually a question that one of the friends asked. Actually, so, you know... <laughs> <laughs> so people around the office are imagining what if, you know, you just came into a lot of cash and they're saying, Dom, what would you do with mm. $600,000 cash or a million cash? Then I would say, um, one, go and get as much debt as you can. You want to use leverage. Mm. Interest is very cheap. So go and get some debt. Um, not leverage yourself to the eyeballs, don't be crazy, but enough so, that much, so much so that you can afford to service that debt. And then I'd say go and buy a balanced portfolio. Go buy a number of different assets. Go and buy maybe two or three properties in varied areas and diversify as much as you can because for all of our research, investing is still investing and the, the smartest approach is by having a diversified portfolio. Buy some house and land, buy a nice inner city urban apartment, buy a townhouse, buy something Brisbane, uh, go buy something in Sydney, go buy something in um, Melbourne, Brisbane if you really want to. Um, so yeah, try and diversify your portfolio as much as you can. Um, and But then again, it just comes down to your age as well. So did, did I answer your question there? Yeah, as much as you can. I think it is very circumstantial. Very circumstantial. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the end of our questions. I did have one come up and I know it gets asked a lot on that similar topic about um, areas and how you can come across opportunities where it is going to be a growth area but still getting it at a good time where it's a good price. I don't understand the question. So the question is you've identified a good area and you want to get in at a good price? Or how do you find the next area that's going to boom, but not getting in too late, not getting in when everyone else is getting in and going before the market? For example, a lot of people are asking, you know, for Northwest, how can you find opportunities like the Northwest where people are willing to pay over $1 million for it, but not pay $1 million and maybe pay pre-market like 600000 You've got to be brave because these mm. areas aren't nice. <laughs> the areas that are going to grow are typically, you know, if you're trying to get into the, the cheaper areas that are going to grow, they're going to be shitty. It's not pretty. They're not pretty. I remember some of the early areas that I visited, uh, one area in particular was called Wickham. And in my first explorations, I was walking around and there was a king rooster that was running the streets and chasing dogs and there was a broken down bus and then there was stray dogs around and it was like light industrial, grungy, it was gross, really gross. 
And I could see that there was a lot of potential in this area because there's a train station changing, there's some zoning changes, a whole bunch of stuff changing. Mm-hmm. But you had to visualise what's this area going to be in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And you needed to draw on – I had to draw my experiences because I'd seen areas that were shitty that became yeah. nice. You know, I've seen areas that had lower socioeconomics that slowly changed and became um, full of people that had higher incomes and what impact higher incomes have on the area – so I think the answer to that question is you, you need to do your research. You need to understand or have some markers in that research that will tell you where the area is going to go and what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to have a bit of an imagination and you need to be brave. Yeah. Because it is investing and you may lose. You may make the wrong decision yeah. and be just prepared to make a mistake and live with it but figure out what that worst case scenario looks like. And then also if you make the decision, um, be patient. Property takes time. You know, it's it's not – if you're here to make a dollar overnight, then you're buying the wrong investment. Yeah. Go buy cryptocurrency. Go Hopefully. go to the pokies. <laughs> go to the casino, <laughs> you know. Don't do any of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do your research and, and, yeah, just be patient and, and figure it out slowly. Or just come and talk to the team and, and we'll help you. That's a nice way to end the podcast. Come and talk to the wealthy team. Yeah. Um, Jody. thank you for all these questions. I'm surprised that we're, we're finished so soon. Um, you're doing a fantastic job. You're doing a really, really good job. Thank you so much. Uh, the clients love you. They talk about you all the time. Um, so all of you out there, when you do reach out, the first person that you talk to is probably Jody, um, And she's often the person that will help uh, make sure that this, this machine runs smoothly so thank you for your hard work and and you know yeah the clients love you and so do all the team um thank you for coming on the show and for all of you out there thank you for listening and if you have more questions send them to jody send them to me any of the team um and we hope to hear from you all soon have a lovely day stay dry and um, we'll catch you later catch you later